Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. Coming up in this episode. Never do I remember any adults speaking about Barbara Cotton. I can still see her sitting there. Uh, Which was, in fact, 11 days prior to uh, Barbara missing. Um, Sure enough, here these two come in. It was the guy that was got the cigarette she got the cigarette from. He came in with one of his buddies. I can't tell you how many times people stopped and asked me if I wanted a ride. No confirmation, nothing back from the Wilson uh, Police Department. I waited patiently to see if you guys would roll around and maybe find me. Oh, it had been maybe 10, 15 seconds later, here this guy come. I had stopped and asked him, well, where's Barbara? And he said, well, she got a ride. This is episode 12 of A Better Search for Barbara, an ongoing investigation into the 1981 disappearance of Barbara Louise Cotton. If you're confused, there really was no episode 11. That was just a short seven-minute update letting you know that my Facebook account had been deactivated without forewarning or explanation. With it vanished all of the Barbara Cotton posts for about 30 hours. What was done with my account and that content for 30 hours, I have no idea. It was reinstated. I have absolutely no idea what happened. In this episode, we're going to do two things. First, I'm going to share a little bit about the event in Recreation Park on the 40th anniversary of Barbara's disappearance. After that, I'm going to do some more investigating. Specifically, I'm going to share three interviews with you. Three people who believe they saw Barbara on the night she disappeared. I'll even be so bold as to say this. I feel confident that if Barbara did go to a party on the night she disappeared, I'm highly confident that I have found it. But before we get into all of that, some updates. First of all, you may remember that I have started a petition to ask Williston Chief of Police David Peterson to put more resources on Barbara Cotton's case. We are currently approaching 2,500 signatures, and we could sure use some more. To sign the petition, please see the link in the podcast show notes or go to change.org and just search for Barbara Cotton or go to dakotaspotlight.com and follow the links there. I also want to update you on some open records requests I've made in Wyoming in regards to Frank De La Pena, a person of interest in Barbara's case. You'll recall that Frank De La Pena left Williston about three weeks after Barbara went missing and then murdered two young girls in Wyoming two days later. I made an open records request to the state of Wyoming, both to Carbon County, where the crime took place, and also to the Wyoming Department of Criminal Investigation. I received great help from these agencies, and I've also received a lot of documents about Frank de la Pena's crime, including lists of things they found in his van and trailer. It is clear that the Wyoming Department of Criminal Investigation and their state lab took part in the investigation of that double homicide. 
the crime lab processed Della Pena's vehicles and their contents. Our hope is that the evidence collected in that investigation might still be available somewhere. What if, we have asked ourselves, what if Barbara's DNA is in that evidence, possibly in the form of a human hair? We also wonder, of course, are any of the photographs law enforcement took of the interior of the vehicles still available? Of course it's a long shot, but what if Barbara's jacket or some other item of hers is in one of those photographs? In the records from Wyoming, there are lists of items found in De La Pena's vehicles. I'll read for you some random items from that list. Book, boots, road atlas, tennis shoes, pill bottle, tape, sunglasses, blue blanket, pink blanket, sleeping bag, roll of tape, piece of carpet, book, photo negatives, photographs, copies of photos from roll of film, red, white, and blue bag of clothing, box with Frank de la Pena's clothing, bedspread. The thing that jumps out at me are the photographs and negatives. My understanding is that this is a list of de la Pena's belongings. In other words, the negatives and photos were his, not photos law enforcement took of the crime scene. So really, there are two sets of photographs we are interested in, those which investigators took of de la Pena's vehicles and belongings, and whatever rolls of film or photographs Frank de la Pena had in his possession when he was arrested. We don't know if Frank de la Pena is responsible for Barbara's disappearance, or if he ever met Stacy Werder, but we sure would like to see de la Pena's photographs. What if there's a picture of Barbara or Stacy Werder in one of those photographs. Unfortunately, there were no pictures in the documents sent to me from my open records request. So what happened to those negatives and photographs found in his van? First, some bad news. After Frank de la Pena committed suicide in May of 1981, Carbon County concluded, after a very lengthy and detailed investigation, that Frank de la Pena alone was responsible for the murders. Then, in June of that year, after making copies of his photographs, they released Frank's belongings, including his photographs, to his mother. So, first of all, we want to know if the photographs investigators took of the van and trailer are still in existence. And just as importantly, we want to know if Frank de la Pena's own photographs are still in existence. And of course, there is the other physical evidence collected from the vehicles by the state crime lab. We're hoping they collected hair and other evidence, evidence with DNA on it. Now, in regards to the physical evidence from Wyoming's investigation, last thing I have heard was that they are unable to find anything in their present-day evidence lockers, but there is one last place they can look. I have my fingers crossed that Wyoming will locate everything they have on Frank de la Pena and that that everything will include photographs and much, much more. The other possibility for us to find Frank de la Pena's photographs is to find his mother if she's still alive. And then there's this. I have also learned that Frank de la Pena may have been married and he had a son born in 1978. Is it possible that the photographs that were sent to his mother are still in existence, either in her possession or the possession of Frank's widow or son. I intend to try to find out, but of course first, I need to locate these people. We will talk more about Frank de la Pena in a future episode.
Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. But for now, let's move on to a short segment about the celebration of Barbara's life and then interviews with three people who think they saw Barbara Cotton on the night she disappeared. Over there's a table where we got some rocks. You can paint a rock for Barb, and you can either take it home with you in memory of her, or you can uh, leave it somewhere special for somebody else to find. On April 11, 2021, I traveled back to Williston to attend the celebration of life for Barbara and Recreation Park. The event was organized by the Cotton family, Sandy Evanson, and others, and considering the very cold and windy weather, there was a great turnout. A few people got up and spoke at the event, including a representative from the Williston Police Department. I did my best to record the event, and yet, even with proper wind protection from my microphone, the North Dakota wind proved invincible, and, of course, the mask I was wearing muffled my voice somewhat. Steve Anderson, I'm a pastor in town, and I'm here because we want to give Barb justice and let her know that we're thinking about her after all these years and let her know that uh, God has always been with her. Yeah, I think we could have solved this or we could have done something better for her. I was living here when it happened. I remember it in the news, but... uh, I, I really didn't know Barb or anything. So. It's a special day. It's a beautiful day, but a bittersweet day. Uh, it's beautiful that people are remembering this young lady 40 years later. And it's sad that sad that we have to remember her 40 years later instead of, instead of just being with her 40 years later. What's your name? Michaela Evanson. Sandy, Sandy's your mom then? Yep. Are you? Matt Shannon. This I'm Michaela's husband. husband. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So uh, why, are, why are you guys here today? To support Sandy. Awesome. Wasn't she great in this podcast? She sure was. I'm so proud of my mom. She's done a really good job. And where did you guys travel from? Montana? Yeah, we're from Fairview, Montana. It's like 30 miles from here. I think you guys have done a good job. um, I don't think we would be here right now if it wasn't for you or my mom or Kent and Kathy. It's pretty special to see everybody come together all this time later and try to get something, some sort of resolution. Some parents came prepared for the wind with little tent-style windbreakers for their kids to sit in, the kind of thing you might see on a coastal beach. You guys got a cool little tent here. What's going on? Who are you guys and where'd you come from and why? Uh, I'm Lisa Joe. I'm uh, near Hibbing, Minnesota. Wow, that's a long trip. A little bit of a long trip, yeah. Um, no, the podcast has been great. I'm so thankful that you've been working on this and happy to help with everything. You know, it's nice. It's been a great help. Thank you. Um, it, you're welcome. It's nice to help research people where I can actually find more information on them. So. Near a picnic shelter, a row of tables is set up with sandwiches, soft drinks, cookies, coffee, and more. I move to another table where I see vases full of flowers. What do we got going here? Oh, they're painting a rock for Barb. So you can paint a rock in memorial of Barb. Throughout the day, 
people will pick up a carnation and place it on the recreation park sign facing 2nd Avenue West. Then they say a prayer for Barbara. As the afternoon progresses, motorists along 2nd Avenue can watch as the metal sign transforms from a rusty brown to a colorful palette of red, yellow, white, pink, and purple. At the foot of the sign are painted rocks with phrases like Barb Cotton Never Forgotten. One of the speakers at the event was Pastor Steve Anderson of Williston. Here is a little snippet. Of everything in our lives, we are never out of his sight. Barb was never out of God's sight. He was always there with her, knowing everything that happened. Another speaker was Lacey Hinesley, an advocate fighting sex trafficking and crimes towards children. We may never know the danger that lurked in the park or at the party the night of Barb Cotton's disappearance. Barb may not have been a victim of sex trafficking, but if the community had the knowledge and resources to prevent these incidences then, like they do now, dangerous situations like these could have been avoided. We are dedicated to making prevention education available to our community members. And we are doing this for all of the kids, including Barb. No one has seemed to shed a light on Barb's case the way that J.D. Wollner has. Without his podcast and his captivating storytelling, we wouldn't be here today. There has been a petition formed to urge the chief of police here in Williston to hire a private investigator to specifically work on Barb's case. You can find the petition to sign on the Dakota Spotlight Facebook page. I've been asked by a special friend that Barb and I share, Sandy Evanson, to share a poem with you. So here it goes. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old me that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me and the people I've known or loved, and if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die, people do. So when that's all that's left of me is love, give me away. Thank you. Okay, and now I'd like to give the opportunity for somebody from the police department to come up and say a few words. Yes, members of the Williston Police Department were present at the event. These included a patrol sergeant Olson, who spoke, Chief of Police David Peterson, and also Detective Amber Kane, who has worked on Barbara's case. Hopefully you have listened to episode 10 of this podcast, where I basically make a plea for someone, such as the Williston Police Department, to take an ethical, symbolic, and honest stance on this case and acknowledge publicly that mistakes were made in Barbara's case. I think it's important. I think anything else disrespects Barbara Cotton's memory. We definitely did not get that on April 11, but I'm hoping it might come some day. On the other hand, it's far from certain that Williston PD are listening closely to the podcast, as Detective Amber Kane indicated when I asked her. And uh, what was your name again? Uh, Detective Amber Kane. Thanks for coming out. Uh, why are you here? Just to remember Barb. I mean, just like everybody else in this community, we want to find answers. And this case just means a lot to everybody. So this is one way we can show our support and support to the family. And hopefully one day we'll have answers. That would be great, wouldn't it? That would be. May I ask you, have you been listening to my podcast? I've listened to parts of it, yep.
Here is what Williston PD had to say on the 40th anniversary of Barbara's disappearance. It's all very true and valid points, but not exactly the tune I was hoping for. The bullet points of the message were important ones. However, we were asked to imagine what law enforcement go through when they respond to missing person cases and learn not what law enforcement can do better, but rather how parents and the community can help with missing person cases. Yes, all very valid, of course. Hi there. Thank you everyone for coming out. It's always great to see the support Williston that the community has for things. Just like 40 years ago, imagine what those officers were going through. Uh, the hardest call you'll ever go through is hearing that call when a child goes missing. Uh, it just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. I wish I could tell you in the last 40 years that Barb was the only one ever to go missing. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, as parents, know, know your children. Know their routines. Uh, know their friends. Know places they're going to go. Uh, that helps us tremendously to, when we do get that call, unfortunately, to have a baseline where to start know what they're wearing to school to go out to play have an idea of what they're wearing as community members if you see something strange or suspicious no matter how big or small it may be please contact us and we will do whatever we can to to follow up any leads that come in and we are always open 24 7 we can always get you in contact with somebody about this so again thank you everyone for coming we do appreciate that it's great to see the support for this cause and to show the celebration of barb's life and and to see what what will happen and, and keep this event going, okay? In addition to these comments, Sergeant Olson added that today the police department has access to much more resources than in 1981. Amber alerts and specialized training and a child abduction response team, which gives them access to resources within the FBI. I want to note that I have edited this audio, mostly due to wind and to shorten it down somewhat. If you want to hear it in its entirety in 100% unedited form, listen to the very, very end of this podcast, after the ending credits and everything, and you can listen to it then, wind and all. All in all, this event was a great tribute to Barbara Cotton. On that afternoon, honoring her life, I did not pursue any investigative interviews or anything like that. This was a day to celebrate Barbara, after all. But now, now that the 40th anniversary has passed, I'm going to return to looking for answers, starting with the rest of this episode. I've spoken with three people who believe they saw Barbara on the night she disappeared, two of them at a party and the other at the Plainsman and Cakes and Cones. It's a cold day, mid-April, Bismarck, North Dakota. Sleet, snow, rain. I've traveled to this location to speak with someone about Barbara Cotton. We've spoken on the phone twice, but I've never met her in person. She grew up in Williston, still lives near there, but on this day she had planned to be in Bismarck, which is closer to me, so we arranged to meet. I exit my vehicle, walk through a dark indoor parking lot, and finally find the entrance to the lobby of a hotel. I don't know much about this person, but what I do know is important enough. She is 100% certain she met Barbara Cotton, and she thinks it was on the night Barb went missing. The other thing I know is that in 1981, she lived at the so-called low-income housing at 18th Street West and 5th Avenue West. 
This neighborhood has been on our radar since episode two, ever since we spoke with Barbara's childhood friend, Diane Latticer. In fact, two days before she disappeared, she called me and she wanted me to meet her at, uh, I can't think of this lady's name, it's just been driving me crazy. But she, they were going to, they wanted to bring the dog to the vet in the morning. She goes, oh, come on over. And it was at the housing project on 18th. Diane thought that this person's name might be Lori. The person I will meet in the hotel lobby is not named Lori. In the hotel lobby, I pace a bit until I finally make myself sit down in a leather armchair and just wait. When she does arrive through the front doors, we introduce ourselves and then find a quiet area where we can talk in private. Thank you for meeting me today. We're in Bismarck, North Dakota. Why don't we first talk about what you just told me. You've been sort of aware of the podcast, but you didn't reach out to me, did you? No, I didn't want to be influenced by the podcast in in any way of thinking. I waited patiently to see if you guys would roll around and maybe find me. You want to introduce yourself? I'm Donna Johnson. I'm from Williston, North Dakota. And do you want to tell us your maiden name or no? Uh, Donna Ellis. On the night Barbara disappeared in April of 1981, Donna was one month shy of her 17th birthday. She had her own apartment at 18th and 5th, and there was a lot of partying going on there at the time. Oh, we, we partied a lot. It was like my first apartment, and it was a place where everybody congregated. Um, uh, my sister, Cindy, was younger. I can just recall always having a lot of parties on the weekends. If you find it odd that a 16-year-old girl had her own apartment, I would agree. But I'm learning it certainly was not unheard of. In fact, you may recall that Barbara's best friend, Diane Latticer, told us that she and Barbara were planning to do the very same thing, to get their own apartments at age 16. So this was Donna's life at the time. She had her own place where others came to hang out and party. You may also find it interesting, as I did, that the first place Donna ever got drunk was in Recreation Park, when an older guy offered her and some other kids some vodka. So you're 12 years old, and you go to Recreation Park? I'm guessing. Guessing? 12, yeah, 12, 13, 14. And an older gentleman, what? Oh, he just happened to come by, and he he was parked by there. And I can't even remember. And there was a few of us, and he offered us some alcohol, and we all drank. Yeah, I got drunk. Donna believes Barbara was at her apartment on April 11, 1981. You'll recall that someone told Barbara's mother, who later told the police, that they had seen Barbara at a party that night. Williston PD says they know who this person is, the person who told Louise that she saw Barbara at a party. Williston PD also tells us they have made contact with this person in recent years. Donna, then, does not seem to be this unnamed friend because she has not been spoken to by police in recent years. She does recall speaking with the police back in 1981, but it's fuzzy, and she says the cops were at her place now and then anyway, so she's just not quite sure. I believe very strongly that if Barbara went to a party that night, this is where it was at Donna Johnson's apartment. And when Barbara Cotton showed up to this party, she was not alone. Here is the way Donna Ellis Johnson remembers that night. I'll note that Donna told me that this was the first time she ever met Barbara. Well, Barbara showed up at my house one evening, and of course I had a lot of people at my place. I was young, and 
she showed up with her boyfriend. And I just remember her sitting there and she was just a, this young, beautiful girl. Well, I was young too. She was very quiet, didn't talk hardly at all. And um, I can still see her sitting there in front of me. She was sitting in a chair and he was sitting next to her. And she was so tiny that they pretty much fit in the same chair. What kind of chair was it? Just a little, like a little rocker chair or whatever. And they were sitting there together? Yeah, because I didn't have much furniture. I can still see her sitting there, just like this. Donna shows me. She sits up rather straight on the edge of her seat. Her feet are flat on the floor. She folds her hands together and lets them fall into her lap, and then she smiles. She looks very proper, harmless, polite, and kind. I asked Donna how much she could remember about this guy, the guy that Barbara was with. He was about her height, pretty close to her height. He wasn't very tall or big stature of a person. You know, he was a smaller guy. I always thought he kind of had maybe a blondish, maybe kind of hair. You know, it just—it's so vague. I, I. Just can't put a face on him directly. Before a meeting with Donna, I had emailed her a photo of Stacy Werder and a photo of Frank de la Pena, two of our persons of interest. Donna felt confident that she could exclude Frank de la Pena as being the man Barbara was with, based on his appearance and ethnicity. Frank de la Pena had dark hair, black hair. He was Latino. He just didn't look like the guy Barbara was with at all. Stacy Werder, on the other hand, is a great fit. And remember, Louise Cotton told police that Barbara had been with Stacy that night. And she also told people that Stacy was Barbara's boyfriend. Donna and I talked about Stacy Werder. He did kind of, he was small. I sent you the picture. Unfortunately, I only had the Navy photo, I think. And he was blonde. Um, could it possibly have been that guy? There's a possibility possibility, but I still can't put a face on him. Why do you think this guy that was her boyfriend? Well, because they were walked in the house together. They sat together, you know. Um, he was just right there. They left together. That's right. They left together. But that's not the end of Donna's story because to her recollection, one of them came back that night. This is the way Donna remembers it. Barbara and this guy, who I believe was Stacy Werder, left. Then she says, Stacy Werder returned without Barbara. I had stopped and asked him, well, where's Barbara? And he said, well, she got a ride. And I said, she got in a car? And he said, yeah, and I said, well, who did she get in a car with? What kind of car was it? And that's all I recollect of asking because he didn't give me any other information. He said he didn't know. And when they left, and he comes back in your memory, any idea where they went or why? Didn't ask him. Didn't ask him, just asked him where she was at. And he said she had gotten a ride. Why would, why would he come back to your place, do you think? Probably because there was a lot of people there. 
Okay. You know, it just was a hangout for everyone. Let's explore, was it the night Barbara disappeared is what I'm trying to, I'm wondering. Like, could it have been a week earlier or what are your thoughts on all of that? Deep down in my heart, I feel it was that night. I just feel it was. But with the drinking and the partying going on, it may have been, you know, in that area in a few days within that, you know, and... I just feel it was that night because her mom, her mom started calling me because she must have known she was around there or had been around there. That's right. Louise Cotton started calling Donna, and she kept calling her for months. I got a call, and she said, this is Barbara's mother. Um, I was wondering if you had any information, if I knew anything. And I told her I really didn't. And she would just periodically call me for a long time, at least, at least six months. Right. Somehow she had heard and she would call me. And every time she called me, I just dropped down on the chair. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, she just would always ask if there was anything that I knew or anything I could remember. And I would just say, I'm so sorry. I, I do not. I do not. Now, while some of Donna's 40-year-old memories could, of course, be inaccurate, I don't think she would get this detail wrong, that Louise called her over and over and over again. Sure, memories about one night might be fuzzy, but wouldn't we remember a pattern that took place over several months being called again and again and again by a mother with a missing daughter? Did the police ever talk to you? In the back of my mind, I, I want to say yes, but I still, I wouldn't have been able to give them any information other than what I've told you that she had left. Now, your sister isn't here with you today. She's, no. Do you want to, can you tell us what she thinks about all this? Um, I really can't speak for my sister. Um, we both feel the same. It, it's always bothered us that we've just never known what has happened to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, does she remember this party or anything, or is it? Uh, We'd have to ask her, maybe. Yeah, it would be best to ask her what she kind of knows. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I really can't speak for my sister. I did speak to Donna's sister. Her name is Cindy. She also recalls hearing that Barbara's boyfriend returned to Donna's apartment later, but not that night. Hello. Is this Cindy? Yes, it is. I I don't know that I can tell you anything more than I believe she told you that I I believe I seen. Well, I know I did. I seen Barbara with a, a with a boy within very short time before she disappeared. I don't know if it was the night she disappeared or within that one week or so before that. And that was at your sister's apartment or somewhere else. No, it was at her apartment over in the 18th Street part apartment. Donna said that was the only time she'd ever met Barbara. Yeah, it's not the only time I've ever met her. She she was starting to run in the same circles I did. You know, I didn't I knew her from from school, but I'd never associated with her at all. And within that week before she disappeared, she she was in my life a little bit. I mean, there's I have a couple of memories of her. 
I, she wasn't, she didn't run with me in my group. Right. But she was just, just within that week or so prior to her disappearing, they've been, they've been coming around. This is interesting. Just that week, they started coming around. Let me play that again. Just within that week or so prior to her disappearing, they've been, they've been coming around. I think something changed in Barbara Cotton's life that week. She's hanging out in a new place. And do you remember what Barbara's best friend, Diane Latticer, told us? She said that she hung out with Barbara 24-7 until that week she went missing. Here is Diane Latticer again. Because like I said, we were together 24-7 until unfortunately that week that she disappeared. It's like, you know, the guilt that I had over the years. Until that week. Something changed in Barbara's life that week. What could that have been? Well, it sure sounds like she had a new boyfriend, or at least a guy friend, she was hanging out with. Barbara's mother was telling everyone that her daughter had been with her new boyfriend that night. Donna Johnson tells us that she interpreted this guy to be Barbara's boyfriend. Because they were walked in the house together. They sat together. He was just right there. They left together. Diane Latticer also told us this. But she, they were going to, they wanted to bring the dog to the vet in the morning. She goes, oh, come on over. And it was at the housing project on 18th. I can't think of this person's name. And, uh, and I said, no, nah, I'm just going to go home and um, go to bed. And uh, so I did not meet her. And then the next day, I talked to her a little bit, just seeing what she was, the day before she disappeared. And I go, what are you doing today? And she goes, oh, I'm just going to stay around the house. And I go, well. I'll catch you tomorrow or the next day. And the next thing I know, her mom's calling me asking if I seen Barb and I had not seen her. And that was it. So regardless of who had a dog or what her name was, Diane Latticer also places Barbara at the 18th and 5th Avenue apartment complex where Donna Johnson lived, where Donna and her sister recall meeting Barbara, they think, on the night Barbara disappeared. I did ask Donna and Cindy if they had a dog, but they said no. Their Uncle Lee had a German Shepherd that they might have taken care of once in a while, but no, no dog. Call me crazy, but Donna Johnson's apartment is the party, the place where Barbara was at some point. Donna feels in her heart her memory stems from the night Barbara went missing. We know that Louise believed Barbara was at a party that night. It can't be proven, but this is where Barbara was with some guy, some guy I feel pretty confident is Stacy Werder. This is where they were. What happened after that, I don't know. I was just about to get off the phone with Cindy when she said the following. This type of thing happens quite often, and I want to take this opportunity to express if you think you have information, no matter how small a detail you feel it might be, please reach out to me or Williston PD. Just because you think your information may not be important does not mean that it is not. Case in point, Cindy almost didn't tell me the following detail. This was at the very end of the conversation as I was about to wrap things up. Okay, well. well one other thing, I don't know if it's helpful at all. I don't know who told me this because it's been so long ago. Like the night after she disappeared... Somebody told me that her boyfriend, this guy she was with, came back to the apartment 
saying, where is she? I know she's here. Oh. Why are you guys hiding, hiding her? And he was, like, threatening to beat people up. I was not there when it happened, but somebody told me this is what happened. Yeah, and the reason I believe that they would think that, and, and even, like, uh, Louise calling my sister all the time, um, and, like, the boyfriend thinking she was over at this apartment. When you think about it, back then, I was 12. My cousin Sandy Ann was probably 14, 15. We were living there. We didn't go to school. We didn't want to be at home with our parents. We were running the streets, you know, so why wouldn't they think that Barbara was there with us, you know, because that's kind of the meeting place for everybody to come before we went off and did our thing every night. And, you know, why wouldn't they think she might be there? You know? Right. So that, and, makes, and, that, that could make sense yeah. that like Barbara or excuse me, Louise got in touch with this guy. If it was Stacy Werder and yeah. said, where's my daughter? And he says, well, I watched her walking or, you know, and then he went thinking he was going to help Louise went back to try to find her at your place. Yeah. And True. That, that's True. possible. True. And, it, and it's like I said, like Donna, I'm sure told you. So this has never left my brain. I've always thought of her. Because you, I can't tell you how many times back there, then in that day and age when I'm out, I, like I said, I'm 12, 13 at the most, and I'm out there walking the streets. I can't tell you how many times people stopped and asked me if I wanted a ride. Sometimes I took the rides. Sometimes I didn't. It depended on when and where I was going and how far I had to get to. And that so much easily could have been me that disappeared instead of her. So it, it has always stuck with me all these years. It's just the life we led then. It just is. So I, I just, I really want to know what happened to her. It's never left me. Never. Now I'd like to introduce you to someone else who says he saw Barbara Cotton on the night she disappeared. He's not certain it was that night, but considering what we have learned about Frank de la Pena, I wanted to play this interview for you. I felt it was important to get the story out to the public in case it sparks anyone else's memory. I'd just gotten out of the military and a friend of mine, Randy Falcon, just got out well. I think he was still in. I can't remember if he was home on leave at the time. This is Daryl Lund. Daryl lives in Williston, grew up in Williston. He went to Williston High and graduated in 1977. Uh, he was, he, but we ran into each other. We used to party with each other all the time. Daryl and Randy went to check out a dance one block east of the Plainsman at a place called the Armory. They didn't stay long, and when they left, they walked to the corner of 4th and Main and stood under the awning or doorway at the Plainsman building. We went over to Plainsman, where we used to hang out underneath the front doors there, and uh, we were just hanging out there, me and Randy, and he had a cigarette. And And then, Daryl says, 
Barb Cotton approached them. She was walking east, he says, on 4th Street, as if she might be coming from the armory building. And she stopped and talked to us for a minute. She asked Rand if she could have a cigarette, and he said, I don't have any. And it was not even that far back. I mean, it was only maybe 10 seconds later, this guy comes, he comes in, and he asked, or she asked if he had a cigarette. This guy comes out of the alley or shadows or from somewhere and offers Barbara a cigarette, which Daryl says she takes. But he didn't say anything to her, didn't talk to her, she didn't talk to him. And she just gave us this kind of look like she was kind of scared. I don't know why, but she just gave us a look and just like, you know, who the hell is this guy and where did he come from kind of attitude. And like I told my son, he had dark, the one, uh, what he was wearing a um, Levi jacket and he had long brown hair and it was curly and I couldn't tell for sure, but I thought he was Native American, but... I sent the mugshot of Frank de la Pena to Daryl. He felt that this could quite possibly be the man he remembers. Then Daryl says he, Barbara, and Randy leave this guy, and they walk to Cakes and Cones. They sit down together in a booth, Barbara, Randy, and Daryl. After some amount of time, in walks that same guy who gave Barbara a cigarette outside the Plainsman. He was in the company of another guy, a white guy. Um, sure enough, in here these two come in. It was the guy that was got the cigarette, she got the cigarette from. He came in with one of his buddies, and he was a white guy. And he had kind of a long, short, you know, down to his shoulder uh, brown hair he had. And Randy asked her if she would need to ride, or, you know, we'd walk home because we'll walk her home. She said, no, we'll be, she'll be okay. She said, no problem. So when we left, they, them two were still there. So we took off. He goes home, and I went home. And, and that was it. Obviously, did you ever talk to the police about this, or did they talk to you? No. I mean, we didn't take it that serious about anything. I mean, you know, um, I don't remember even us even contacting the police at all about it. Back then, you know, nobody really cared much about people disappearing because the younger kids, because, you know, the cops really didn't care. I mean, they were just like one of those situations, you know, they'd take off and for a couple, two or three days and the cops, nobody really cared. Nobody even thought about looking for them or anything like that, you know. I'll note that the guy Daryl was with that night, Randy Falcon, is deceased. Okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to put this on the podcast, and there's going to be people who won't believe you and are going to question your memory, which is a normal thing to do. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how certain are you about the, that it was actually that weekend? How, how confident are you about your own memory in general? Mm-hmm. And what would you say to people who say they don't, they don't believe you, I guess? Um, I mean, I don't care if they believe me or not, to be honest with you. I mean, this, you know... You got you got to remember this has been forty years back, and so I'm kind of I'm kind of on a fifty fifty deal on there. You know what I'm saying? Have you been listening to the podcast yourself? No, I haven't. I I found out about you on uh, on the news. Did your son tell you about the podcast? Yeah, he told me about it. Yeah, and so that's what I thought. Maybe maybe I could be of some interest. You know, I don't know, but. 
I asked Daryl to tell me about the interaction one more time, starting from the plainsman. Standing underneath there, trying to figure out where we were going to go and do. And that's where Randy was having a cigarette. And then she just come on that side of the street where we were at and saw us. And then she stopped and asked if Randy had a cigarette. And Randy told her, no, he didn't have one. And that's just within a couple of seconds later, oh, it had been maybe 10, 15 seconds later, here this guy come uh, out of nowhere. And, of course, then she asked him if he had a cigarette. And he just stood there and he gave her one, said, yeah, sure, or something like that, and gave her one. And that was it. We were all, t- and he he just stood there for a couple minutes and, not you know, not too long, and he turned around, and walked away, and we, well, she, well, you know, we didn't even bother asking her if she was okay or nothing. I just asked her that we were going up to the, if she wanted to go with us, you know, it just seemed kind of strange. I don't know where the hell he came from because I didn't see him cross the street, so he could have been on. He must have came from you know that side of the street or out of the alley or something. Who knows, you know, but. I also asked Daryl if he remembered anything Barbara said that night, and he said, no, sorry, 40 years have passed. This was Daryl Lund of Williston and his story. I did share Daryl Lund's name and the tip with Detectives Hendricks and Kane at Williston PD one month ago. I spoke with Daryl this morning, and he said nobody's contacted him at all. We've talked about this before, workload and resources at Williston PD. This is something that can be remedied, and I think Barbara Cotton deserves it after 40 years. If it is open and ongoing, then it needs to be ongoing. And, to be honest, others have reached out to me with their frustrations, frustrations which highlight this need for more resources on Barb's case. Williston PD has asked for tips. Send us your tips, they say. We want to know anything pertinent about Barb's case. Never do I remember any adults speaking about Barbara Cotton, nor do I ever ever remember any kids going, oh, that's where the girl disappeared. We played in Recreation Park. We were around that community. This is Chad. Chad grew up in Williston. In the same area within three blocks of Recreation Park and within three blocks of where Barbara lived. Really, it was your podcast, which was the first time that I'd really heard the in-depth story about uh, Barbara going missing. Still, you'd think that the, you know the, the, the legend would live on throughout the years, and, and I'd never, ever, ever heard that story of Barbara's disappearance growing up in Williston. When Chad listened to A Better Search for Barbara, he thought of something that happened 11 days before Barbara went missing. There was an incident in my family without going into all details within that incident. And once he thought of it, he couldn't quite get it out of his head. You know, when I, I originally heard, uh, the, you know, the beginning of your podcast, um, immediately that came up and I started discussing this with my family and, and made a connection with that date, uh, which was, in fact, 11 days prior to uh, Barbara missing. Um, but so kind of sat on and going, you know, it sounds like it's a coincidence. Not really sure. Not really sure what to do. Talk to my family. And the family decided they would leave this tip with those working on Barbara's case at Williston PD. Um, I did reach out to her via voicemail. I did not hear anything. I did follow up with her three days after that uh, with an email, and I still have not heard anything. It's been three weeks um, since that email was sent. Three weeks, and you have, to your knowledge, you don't even know if they've received anything, right? It just went out into the 
Yeah, that's correct. I got no confirmation, nothing back from the Wilson uh, Police Department. Finally, Chad just forwarded everything to me instead. How does that make you feel? Uh, well, it took courage to write the email. And it's, you know, at some point you would hope somebody would just reach out and just say, got it, right? Whether they're, whether they're pursuing it or not, but just knowing that somebody actually got it and actually read what I wrote. I hope at least that I responded to your email. Did, didn't I? You did within 15 minutes. Thank you. I've read through Chad's tip, and it's definitely interesting. It's something that needs to be looked into. This morning, I called Williston PD and spoke with the head of investigations there, Stephen Gutenick. I asked him if he would like to make a comment about this, and if he felt it was reasonable that Chad should get zero response on a tip that had taken him and his family considerable courage to offer in the first place. Captain Gutnick told me he would look into it and then call me back. He did call me back about 45 minutes later and said he had given this some thought. He told me he would still look into this but pointed out he could not give us any information about anyone who may or may not have contacted them about an open investigation because if the police department were to reveal that kind of information, it might discourage other sources from coming forward to them. He did have this to say, however. Uh, you know, to answer your question, you know, do I think it's appropriate to wait a month before calling anybody back or whatnot? I mean, for sure not. We try to <clears throat> respond to people as, uh, you know, as timely as we possibly can, but I'm not going to be able to verify if that called us or not on this case. Yeah, and my concern was that if people don't think you're answering, they won't reach out to you at all. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No, I I agree. And if people call us, they should get a call back in a timely manner. But Chad is not going to sit around waiting for someone to respond to his tip. Instead, he's taking action himself. Yeah, so after taking, you know, getting up the courage of writing the email, um, and with the power of the internet, I started doing some of the background search myself, uh, and have uh, uncovered a number of things, uh, and I'm also talking to a private investigator uh, in the state that I live in. And maybe that's what it will take. If Barbara's case is going to be solved, then it needs to be worked. For law enforcement to work it, I think it's more than fair to say that we have demonstrated that they need more resources. Please join currently 2,500 other people and consider signing the petition encouraging the Chief of Police, David Peterson, to put more resources on Barbara's case. You can find the petition in several ways. There's a link in the podcast show notes, or you can go to change.org and search for Barbara Cotton. Or go to dakotaspotlight.com and follow the links there. About five hours after I spoke with Captain Gutnick, I received a text from Chad. He said he'd received an email from Detective Hendricks stating she had received his tip. I'm going to leave you now with something you've already heard today from the celebration of Barbara's life in Recreation Park on April 11, 2021. Thank you all for staying with me on this better search for Barbara Cotton. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old me that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. 
And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me and the people I've known or loved, and if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die, people do. So when it's all that's left of me is love, give me away. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.